Hello and welcome to Flora Funga Podcast with your host KK. I am coming back from a weekend cruise and I have lost my voice because I have partied too hard. Um, But this week's episode, we actually cover my first reoccurring guest. I bring back Dr. Christopher Rulin from Mankato. He was my favorite professor I've ever had. He made me fall in love with plant biology. And we cover topics involving water and the process of water movement through plants. So it will be a very fun and educational episode today. And if you have not listened to the photosynthesis episode, that is um, number eight. And so that is what is photosynthesis and how does it work with Dr. Rowan. I will put that link below, but uh, here comes our chat. So enjoy. One more housekeeping item. I am actually going to PodFest uh, here in Orlando this coming weekend. So that is the 26th of January, uh, 2023. And I will be going for uh, multiple days. I actually got a free ticket with PodFest. P-O-D-F-E-S-T. So if anybody is interested in me filming some of that content or I guess meeting me there, I would love to network with you and um, introduce myself. So I hope to see you there. Well, welcome, Dr. Ruin, again, my first reoccurring guest on Flora Funga Podcast. I had you on one of my top 10 uh, podcasts about photosynthesis, so I'll have to link that down below. But today we're talking about kind of the water and plant um, relationship. So can you give the listeners your introduction and how you got into flora or plants? Sure. Uh, well, I'm a professor at Minnesota State University here in Mankato, Minnesota. That's kind of how KK and I met. Um I started off actually strangely enough, which is kind of relevant to this podcast today, is I started out uh, actually studying uh, freshwater streams. So I had a, uh, you know, as an undergraduate student, I was supposed to be doing a undergraduate research project, which is kind of like what you had to do, KK, with mm-hmm. me, uh, where I was studying uh, caddisfly larvae and caddisfly larvae are very important in freshwater inputs of energy into aquatic streams. They're shredders. They process a lot of organic detritus and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, one of the things caddisfly larvae do is they will, in their early instar, early larval stages, they'll uh, build cases, um, little larval cases, little like little houses, uh, that they live in out of uh, decaying leaves. And as my undergraduate research project was going along, I started thinking about, all right, so how do these larvae pick what type of leaf material to build uh, these larval cases out of? And it turns out it's we did a little study where we would introduce different types of leaf material mm-hmm. and then measure how they built these houses and so on and so forth. And a lot of it just had to do with the leaf rigidity, which in turn is directly related to lignin uh, concentration. So lignin is obviously, a, you know, an important component of the secondary cell wall of plants. And uh, when I finished that study, I kind of had two different avenues to go down. I could either go and keep on studying aquatic insects, or I could go and look at uh, plant material. And I kind of just kind of backwards fell into the plant stuff. Uh mm-hmm 
did a master's degree at West Virginia University, uh, modeling uh, ozone depletion and how it affects uh, evergreen foliage, you know, conifers and things like rhododendron, you know, evergreen angiosperms and so on and so forth. And that kind of just fell into a project for my PhD where we looked at how uh, ozone depletion um, and uh, warming along the Antarctic Peninsula affects terrestrial ecosystems um, in Antarctica. And mm -hmm. that's kind of where I finished my education and started off at Minnesota State. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years and all of a sudden I got a young student by the name of Caitlin Kewen in my class. So <laughs> yes. Awesome. And uh, I guess there's a lot of water in Antarctica, correct? Oh, yeah. Technically. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Did you do any like water things with that or was that mainly plant animal oh, no. focus? That's a great question. Actually, one of the things uh, we studied was how uh, supplemental precipitation influences primary productivity in plants in Antarctica. Oh, and nice. um, with climate change in Antarctica, uh, they're starting to see changes in how precipitation uh, occurs um, in the growing season. So, mm -hmm. you know, how much of it is snow? How much of it is liquid water? Mm, and yeah. uh, one of the things we did was we kind of simulated all right, with a three degree uh, Celsius warming uh, increase or uh, simulation on the Antarctic Peninsula, how would that influence how much precipitation uh, the plants um, and mosses receive? And, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. like the percentage of each could also make a difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. And what we're finding is uh, the vascular plant species, which there are only two of in Antarctica. <laughs> actually, um, they're doing quite well with warming, uh, strangely enough. We're I seeing bet. increases huh. in productivity, in reproduction, uh, all kinds of different things. So, yeah. No interesting. Yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting to see what climate change or uh, the difference in that kind of has an impact on and what continues to grow there or what then grows there or yeah. doesn't yeah i would and this is just a guess but i would venture to guess that as the climate continues to warm uh in along the antarctic peninsula that we're going to start seeing all kinds of biological invasions occurring you know from south america mm. and from sub-antarctic islands and things like that i'm sure it's already happening yeah this is very off topic but yeah. <clears throat> when like the the ice melts, isn't there other things in that than can kind of like now resurface and now it's oh, like, yeah. well, we've never seen this bacteria or organism before. So now it's like, that's scary. Yeah. I mean, I've heard some of that kind of stuff and, mm -hmm. you know, there's stuff in the news about ancient viruses and things like that <laughs> and the permafrost and all that stuff. Yeah. That's not stuff we looked at. One thing we did look at, though. Uh, kind of tangentially related was, you know, when these glaciers melt, you know, when all these this water starts melting and exposes all this new uh, land area uh, for colonization of plants by Antarctica or by uh, plants in Antarctica. And we're actually starting to see in some areas, you know, that were covered by ice, you know, 20, 30, 40 years or maybe less, um, you know, we're starting to see primary succession move in, you know, we're seeing lichens, we're seeing moss. Yeah. So we're measuring, we were measuring things like soil development and, you know, as you can probably imagine, the soils in Antarctica are very nutrient poor. Yeah. Uh, as 
most part. So we're trying to figure out, you know, where the plants are getting their nitrogen from and phosphorus right. and things like that. So, wow. Yeah. And uh, do you have any future trips? I know we're very, <laughs> we're already this way, oh, but yeah. are you uh, planning to go visit again or what was the last time you were there? Oh, it's been a while. Uh, no, no future plans. I kind of avenue of re- my research kind of ended a while ago. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to have a family and uh, yeah. teach when uh, life. Yeah, life gets in the way. It's easy <laughs> when you're a young grad student, but uh, yeah, we're a you know ass- assistant professor. But um, yeah, I kind of have to be back to teach, of course, because uh, the Antarctic summer is you know the austral summer is you know, mm. right in the middle of. Right in the middle of teaching, yep. uh, the normal academic year, so I can't, you know, disappear okay. for four or five months at a time to go play in Antarctica anymore. So, well, maybe when you retire. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there you so, go. So back onto the topic yeah. of water. Can mm-hmm. you give the audience just like a rough definition of what water is and why it's important? Well, sure. Um, you know. Um, as I drink water, water, we all know is yeah. There's a well, we're both so for the audience, we're both recovering from a cold here. I guess we are. <laughs> so I'll be drinking uh copiously from my water bottle here. Um, so we all know what water is obviously, uh, you know, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, H2O. Um, you know, it's an extremely important component of the biosphere exists in both, you know, in liquid, gaseous, solid forms on the planet. And mm-hmm. you know, we have all these different phase changes. I mean, you could teach an entire class just yeah. on, on the water cycle in and of itself. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, water, you know, I remember sitting back in my very first biology, college biology class, you know, and the, what do you start off with in bio 101 yep, and chemistry and, and chemistry, too. It's, it's the chemistry of water. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know life, you know pretty sure life evolved in water, you know, regardless of whatever, whatever, you know, hypothesis you adhere to with the, uh, you know, the start of life, you know, whether it's the deep sea vent hypothesis or the reducing atmosphere hypothesis or one way or another, it's all, it's all about water. And, um, you know, it's a lot of the chemical properties of water that make it, you know, so conducive for life. Mm -hmm. Um, know this things dissolve in water you know we have biological membranes that are semi-permeable and things like that it's all about water i mean like i said it's always water (laughs) you're gonna teach the entire class just on biology and water um but yeah so yeah and so that um i guess we learn like the characteristics but i always found it fascinating like that picture of like a spider that's like on the water surface and like and is that is that the surface tension that is surface tension so so surface tension actually is caused by very strong interactions or cohesive forces Mm -hmm. um, between non-bonding parts of hydrogen atoms to adjacent water molecules and and the surface tension forms at the surface because of the interface between the atmosphere and the liquid water, whereas, you know, molecules down in the water mm-hmm. you know, have interactions with all the water molecules around it, where the molecules on top uh, only have interactions with the molecules that are adjacent to them and below them. So right. that okay. surface tension and which is going to be important here. And when we start talking about the movement of water in plants, which mm-hmm. I think is going to be the subject of today's uh, podcast. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, all those different cohesion, surface tension, capillarity, um, they That's all what the very, very is. important for, for water movement in plants. 
Yeah. So how do does like that surface tension with the bug and the water kind of replicate inside of a plant or the movement of water with a plant? Right. So uh, the oh boy, we're going down a wormhole quick here. Um, so, <laughs> Getting uh, down and nerdy. <laughs> the, cohesion, the cohesion theory for uh, transpiration in plants, um, you know, relies upon the cohesion of water, this unbroken stream of water that moves from the soil through the plant into the atmosphere. That's called the SPAC, right? The spec. So water is not the SPAC. Is that uh, like a, the abbreviation? That is an abbreviation. Okay. SPAC, soil, plant, atmosphere continuum water is oh, not oh i remember pushed. this oh yeah right so <laughs> oh, water yeah. is not pushed through a plant water is pulled through a plant and what yes. that unbroken stream of water through the plant is the atmosphere right Gosh. so it all... from highest concentration to lowest concentration right or vice versa right oh yep the other way around oh depends on which, which that's why you're, you're here yeah. there you go <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so it's all about you know, the chemistry of water and the physical properties of water that, that help, uh, you know, move water. through. The okay. Body. Okay, cool. And um, so what is the definition of like evapotranspiration or transpiration? How is that different? Well, uh, I guess it depends on which context you're talking about. So basically, you know, when we talk about transpiration, we're talking about, you know, water that evaporates through a plant, right? So, um, you know, whereas evaporation, you know, um, is a general term for, you know, when water absorbs energy from the sun or the heat uh, from this, you know, heat and you're changing from a liquid phase to a gaseous phase. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of that's dictated by the incoming energy of a photon. So if you're, if you're talking about, you know, sunlight and things like pan evaporation a lot of that's dictated by how much energy photons of light have coming in and knocking those water molecules out of the liquid into a gaseous phase when we're talking about transpiration you're mainly talking about um at least in this context you know water that is evaporating through a plant okay and then i know that it starts so like kind of it starts more in the soil or do you think Mm -hmm. it really starts up top with the clouds the rain the Uh, chicken or the egg right i mean it's a system right it's i mean you could argue that it's all circular right Mm -hmm. it's part of the water cycle yep right so i mean if we're talking about water and plants um it's certainly you know most plants not all in fact one second Ooh, visual i had a student uh Earlier, uh, earlier in the week, gave me a air plant. <gasps> air plant. Yes. Yeah, air, plants. Um, uh, air plants, you know, are called air plants because they don't, you know, adhere to the soil. But yep. you know, ninety nine percent of the time, unless we're talking about epiphytes or you know, you know, there's weird plants, you know, that put the roots up and grow into pitchers and things like that. But you know, ninety nine percent of the time, you know, plants get their water from the soil right got it yeah. there are certainly instances where they don't where they're you know evaporating coastal fog in the atacama desert or their air plants you know or things like that but mm-hmm. you know most instances plants are, are taking uh water from the soil and um i am by no means a soil biologist and uh but it's a lot of you know the physical properties of the soil you know how much sand how much silt how much clays are in your soil that's, that's a whole whole nother 
whole nother podcast for you, KK. <laughs> I can hook you up with somebody exactly. that can talk to you about that. Yes, um, I would love that. But, um, you know, it's the physical properties of the soil, um, you know, the percentage of sand, silts, and clays that dictate how much water can be held mm-hmm. by that soil. I mean, everybody's gone to the beach, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. played, built Hopefully. sand castles and watched water, you know, drain out of the soil, out of the sand very, very quickly. You know, mm-hmm. sand don't have, have the ability to hold on to a lot of water because they're very large particles. Um, particle size is very large and they don't hold water against gravity. Right. You know, with clays, every, you know, people that have worked with clays, you know, squeezed clay, feel the wetness and clays do a very good job at holding on to water. And it's, you know, sand, silts, clays. And, you know, you probably remember that uh, pyramid soil yep. pyramid where you can classify different types of soil based on their percentages. It's oh, all, yeah. It's all based on the percentages of that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, plants are taking up water uh, out of those uh, spaces held, but, you know, those those spaces between the soil particles hold on to water and plants are directly taking water, you know, from those regions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I love like the visualness of it, like the plants roots actually like taking it from those spots. Um, <clears throat> uh, quick Side note to your air plant situation, I, uh, moving to Florida, that's my favorite thing is the Spanish moss, Oh yeah, which is like the epiphytes. Um, yep. so I've been like teaching all my family about like, like looking it up close. It's like not really moss. They're like right, exactly. actual plants that, yep. wow. So I definitely, I'm trying to reach out and find an expert on Spanish moss because I'm, or epiphytes, I guess in general, cause I think that's very fascinating. Like how they're surviving on all of these trees and is it like a mutualistic relationship or how does that all work? So yeah, that's a very interesting thing on all of the plants here and people think yeah. it's ugly and I'm like, no, this looks so oh, pretty. I agree. I <laughs> yeah. agree 100%. I don't think you'll have any problems. I mean, you should be able to find somebody in Florida. Definitely. That studies that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know there's like specific uh, companies that are removals because people pay for that um, service, mm-hmm. I guess. Yep. So God, that, that'd be so intense. But <clears throat> so we're already at the soil. So from the plant, how does it take water from that and up and yeah, distribute? Great, great question. One thing I want to add, though, to that is and a lot of people. I mean, I've seen PhDs in other disciplines and I won't mention who, but I've heard colleagues in other science departments, you know, talking about, you know, well, plants, you know, get carbon from the air or carbon from the soil and they get, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, plants take up carbon through the atmosphere, through carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but a lot of the mineral nutrients, well, not a lot of the mineral nutrients, you know, are taken from the soil and how do they get those mineral nutrients inside of the plant? I mean, all the iron in your blood, all the calcium and things like that, you know, are from your diets and where do they ultimately come from? From the soil, mm-hmm. right? So how are they, true. You know, plants, plants take up these elements, these micro elements and macro elements, um, you know, these essential, essential elements, uh, in water, right? Dissolved in water from the surface of soil particles. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not only, you know, do plants need lots and lots of water for photosynthesis, for all these other, you know, cellular metabolic processes, but, you know, not they're not only just taking up water, they're also taking up uh, mineral ions dissolved in that water. Right. I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. 
That's very true. That's a good point. Thank you for circling back on that. Sure. So um, to answer your question, so um, plants take up water uh, following what we call a water potential gradient, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, if you remember back from, you know, basic and probably you had this in high school or I know we cover it in like, you know, the first semester biology class diffusion. Mm -hmm. Whenever you start talking about diffusion, then the talk always goes to osmosis, right? So, you know, diffusion for the most, you know, most intents and purposes, you know, when air, when, when molecules go from, uh, you know, when molecules, atoms go from areas of, uh, areas of high concentration to low concentration, you know, following, you know, thermal movement and, um, uh, osmosis is this idea that, you know, water is always going to move to areas of, uh, lower concentration across the semi-permeable, uh, membrane. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, soils hold on to um, large amounts of water, right? And um, as such, they have a very, um, or I should say a a low, so you measure uh, water potential in units of pressure. Um, Typically, typically most scientists uh, use units of uh, of, uh, pascals or megapascals. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with a Pascal, a Pascal is when you think of a Pascal, um, a Pascal is like a Newton meter squared and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a mega Pascal would just be 10 to the sixth Pascals. And, yeah, uh, okay. you can convert, I mean, when, whenever I think of pressure, I think of, you know, what we're familiar with here in the United States is pounds per square inch or PSI when we yep. inflate our tires. Right. So, so. Um, you know, you can convert between PSI and which is an imperial unit over to the metric Pascal, you know, metric and scientific units, Pascals and megapascals, kilopascals and things like that. But water, water has the inherent ability to do work. And, um, (laughs) you know, you can kind of think of it, um, you know, when water moves from one location to another location, I think you should probably remember the, um, the U shape, the U, the glass U uh, tube, right, separated by a semi-permeable, semi-permeable yes. membrane. And when water, when you have high solutes concentration in one side and low solute concentrations in the other, water is always going to move. And you have a semi-permeable membrane that you know water can move through, but the solute can't. Water is going to go from an area of high concentration mm-hmm. to low concentration. And I, I ask the class, okay, if you were to place a plunger on top of that one side that has, um, you know, that's being moved, what would happen to the plunger? And of course, everybody says, well, it would, it, the plunger would move up. And that's exactly right. Right. So, and I then asked the class, well, what did you just do there? And the students take a few seconds. They're like, we perform work. And I'm like, exactly. You uh-huh. move that plunger, you perform physical work. So we say water, water has uh, the potential to do work. Water has potential energy associated with mm-hmm. it. So as, as we measure that in this um, idea of water potential, and we say water that is pure and free, so pure meaning, all right, it has no dissolved solutes, free, it's under no external pressures, um, and at standard temperature and pressure, we define it as having a water potential of zero, right? And everything's based off of that. 
And so um, <clears throat> the more solutes you add, the less potential energy that water has um, in and of itself. And it becomes that value becomes more and more negative. So if you look at the SPAC, if you look at the soil plant atmosphere continuum, um, you know, soils that have a lot of water in it, like in, in a typical agronomic system, um, I'm just going to throw out a system that I'm familiar with here in Minnesota, a typical agronomic value would be about negative uh, 0.05 megapascals, all right? And in order to get water to move from the soil into the plant, the plant has to have a more negative water potential. Okay. All right. So, and because, you know, plants are alive and they have solutes contained within them, right? Um, a mm -hmm. typical water potential of a root's probably about like negative 0.2. Okay. Megapascals. So you're going from like about, so pure free water is a zero, you know, water in an agronomic system in the soils at about negative 0.05 and then a root is about negative 0.2, right? So you got okay. a pretty large, pretty large gradient between those two. Yeah. So water will, will passively move into the plant. You don't have to add energy to the system. And thank goodness, because <laughs> plants lose a lot of water. They take up a lot of water and they lose a lot of water. Dang. So plants, plants don't have to spend any energy to get water into them. It's just through, you know, simple physics water goes from an area of higher concentration to lower concentration, diffuses into the, you know, the root hairs and the roots and enters into the plant. And then from there, it travels uh, through the xylem up through the stem, which even has a more negative water potential and it's like about 0.5 than into the leaf. Uh, and the reason, you know, that's where photosynthesis occurring. That's where, you know, the water needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, a leaf, you're looking at about negative 1.5 megapascals. All right. But where the big gradient is, and this is what's important, yeah. is the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And the atmosphere, and again, it depends on where you're at, what time of day it is, what season it is, if the sun's out, sun's not out. But, uh, you know, in class, we typically say a good water potential value for the atmosphere is about negative 100 megapascals. So if you think about that gradient between the leaf and the atmosphere, yeah, the atmosphere is constantly pulling water out of a leaf, right? A plant, that's, that's the trade-off if you're a plant, all right? Um, you, need car you need to be bringing in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis, but in the same time you're bringing in carbon dioxide, you are losing massive amounts of water out right. of any surface that's open to the environment. And where do plants bring in carbon dioxide and lose water? It's through their stomates. And mm. stomates are little pores on the surface of leaves and in some instances, stems and other plants. Some plants have them on their roots and things like that. But, you know, 99% of the time we're talking about, you know, leaves here, stems. Um, water is constantly being pulled out of those leaves. And so if you're a plant, you're fighting a battle. You're fighting a battle. You're trying to bring in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. But every time you open those stomates to bring in carbon dioxide, you're losing it's a ton of water. Out. Yeah. And we can talk about how much water. If you yeah. Want, yeah. Let's it's, do it. It's amazing. Yes. It, I don't <clears> think, you know, 
it blows my mind. And I'll talk about a paper we just published, just talking about how much water is lost out of corn and soybean fields in the Midwestern United States. If you Whoa. want, yeah, we did the calculation. It completely blew my mind. Oh, like, man. This can't be right. This can't be right. But uh, we got a rough estimate, and we published the paper a couple years ago, and uh, it uh, it's a really big number. But we'll wait till we we'll talk about that. You know in a few minutes or when mm. the time comes. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I remember learning about the, the SPAC and like the picture was very um, ingrained in my memory. So I'm glad that you remembered what that was and I didn't even yeah. have to ask you exactly, sure. but that's exactly what I was trying to cover. And it was mind blowing to me how like you think plants are like efficient. I mean, I know that they don't have to do anything for the water but it's always being taken from them and it seems like a um ineffective or not as an efficient system as you think so is there right. ways to be more efficient or is there things oh, yeah. that plants do to adapt oh yeah how does absolutely. that work yeah absolutely i mean uh you know i took a class in graduate school at arizona state university taught by uh one of my mentors dr stan zarek who is a was a fantastic desert ecologist and just the, the entire class was just adaptations to photosynthesis. Oh, I love that. 50% of it was like water, water relations, you know, how plants in the desert uh, survive, you know, under um, extreme stress. And mm -hmm. um, so before we get to that, maybe mm -hmm. we should talk uh, just before we talk about adaptations to stop water loss, maybe yeah. we should talk about how much uh, water a plant loses. Yes. All right. So um, in plant physiology, we talk about um, this value called the transpiration ratio. All right. Or the TR, the transpiration ratio. Basically, the transpiration ratio, and you can put this, this is the great thing about physiology and ecophysiology. You can convert between units and things like that. But at the end of the day, the transpiration ratio is basically the amount of water that you lose over the amount of carbon dioxide that you assimilate or you bring in. All right. And uh, I would think that probably most of your listeners um, know what a mole is. That a good a mole? Yeah, you can explain. Uh, Maybe just put on a molecule, molecule yeah. basis. All right. Mm -hmm. So um, a typical transpiration ratio uh, for a, a C3 plant, um, we'll talk about C3 in just a second, um, but a transpiration ratio for a typical C3 plant, again, it's going to vary species where you're at and so on and so forth, but a good, a good number is probably 500. Now, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, that means for every single, every single molecule of carbon dioxide that plant brings in, through its stomates, it loses 500 molecules of water. So that's pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. All right. That's, that's, that's a pretty big number. And that's for a typical, and that value can be higher. That value can be lower. That's the, the great thing about plants is that um, they, those stom stomates, um, those pores that are on the surface, um, those most higher plants can control the aperture of that stone, uh, that yeah, pore, yep. right? And that's called stomatal conductance. And, you know, the more open 
um, that the poor is, the more water that you lose, the, uh, the more clothes, the less, obviously. And you can think of it um, for those of you people in the audience, remember like a, a DSLR camera with the uh, with the lens, right? You got a yeah. camera aperture, and that aperture has an iris diaphragm, and that you can control how much light comes through that diaphragm, or like on a microscope, right? When you adjust the light on the right, iris right, right. Same thing with the stomata. All right, um, those guard cells can shrink, those guard cells can expand. They're going to open or close. Um, that's the model pore, and that's going to dictate how much water is lost. Now, if the if the stomate is wide open, we say conductance is very high and resistance is very low, and and water goes screaming out of those pores. Um, but if a plant, you know, in the middle of the day, it's hot, it's sunny, um, the humidity is 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 very very low. It's very dry, right? Um, sometimes plants will close those stomata to try to stave off, you know, um, water loss. Uh, it's like a, what we call a midday depression in photosynthesis. Um, so a plant can control how much water it loses. But in the flip side of that, well, if you're trying to control water loss, then you're limiting the amount of carbon dioxide that you can take up mm. for photosynthesis. So it's always a trade-off. It's always a trade-off with, with plants. And um, so I use the term C3 and I don't want to, they, they can go back and listen to the photosynthesis <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes, but, um, get back there. You know, most, most, most plants on, on the planet, not all, but uh, most plants on the planet, you know, go through C3 photosynthesis and mm -hmm. C3 photosynthesis evolved at a time uh, when the earth was very, very different, uh, <laughs> you know, the atmosphere was very different, but, um, over time from an evolutionary standpoint, we have cam photosynthesis rise up. We have C4 photosynthesis rise up, you know, converging evolution, uh, you know, they appear at different, different points around the planet at roughly the same time. And I think C4 memory serves me correctly. I think they think, think C4 evolved out of cam. And there were different selective pressures that we won't go into uh, that drove this. But at the end of the day, C4 photosynthesis and C3 um, cam photosynthesis, sorry, um, have uh, much lower transpiration ratios. And um, again, you could spend an entire 45 minutes, you could spend an entire class just talking about different photosynthetic types. But C4 yep. photosynthesis, these plants have a much lower uh, transpiration ratio, you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood, 200, 300, 350. Um, okay. They, they use, uh, they're much more efficient and um, cam plants. And if your, your listeners probably associate cam photosynthesis with like the desert with, mm -hmm. with succulents, yep. like here in the United <laughs> States with the Soro cacti and, you know, the prickly pear and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and cam plants have a little bit different strategy. They open their stomates at night with, you know, and there's a lot of advantages to that. Um, the radiation load from the sun is much lower. Mm -hmm. It's cooler. Um, and therefore they lose less water. There's some bad trade-offs because they got to store that carbon overnight until the next morning. Oh. When the sun comes up right, to drive carbon yep. fixation. Um, so there's only so much carbon they can hold and they grow slower and things like that. But at the end of the day, you know, C4 plants, C3 plants are much, C4 plants and cam plants have much lower transpiration ratios. Mm -hmm. and, and 
people, it's kind of a backwards way of talking about things, transpiration ratios. So most of the time we use a term called water use efficiency. And basically the water use efficiency for this lecture, for this podcast is just the inverse of the transpiration ratio. Mm -hmm. So C4 plants and can plants have much higher water use efficiencies because they have much lower transpiration ratios. I got it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, And is there a plant, I don't know if you know this at all, but is there a plant that uses, that's the most efficient with their water and then a plant that's like the least efficient with their water? Or would that just be C3 and CAM or something? You know, uh, if you were to ask me to single out a specific individual species, I wouldn't know off the top of my head. No, but like a family or Um, a common name? um, You know, Crassulaceae is always good as a cam plant. Um, That's, you know, how they got their name. Um, You know, you start looking at some of these plants in in hyper-arid deserts, you know, like in the Atacama Mm. and things like that. I'm guessing they are very water use efficient. You know, whereas plants in the tropics, plants growing in water would have a very low water use efficiency okay it's going to be very species specific Mm -hmm. and the crazy thing is you know a lot of these questions nobody's you know there's never been you know really super super comprehensive surveys done Mm -hmm. i'm sure somebody's looked at it and i just or looking into it and i gotta find them yeah (laughs) it's hard to find money to do just basic physiology i I know i wish like I just want to like have one question, but like that's not going to be funded yeah. at all. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, have a twist. Exactly. And so we were trying to cover the adaptations that it could possibly oh, yeah, have. Right. So, what, uh, like boundary layer or things oh. like that? Is that <laughs> boundary layer? Yeah, you remember something from plant this boundary <laughs> layer conductance and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are all kinds of great adaptations. So. You know, oh, here's uh, before we even go there. All mm-hmm. right. Um, yes. So we we said, all right. So a plant loses, like a C three plant loses, like five hundred molecules of water for every mm-hmm. one molecule of carbon dioxide. So what does yeah. that mean in the real world? Um, <laughs> this is a number Doctor Zarek threw at me once, and I was just awestruck at it, and I didn't really appreciate it till I moved to Minnesota. <laughs> A single, a single corn plant, which is C4, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, a single corn plant can lose over 50 gallons of water over its lifetime during the growing season. Whoa. 50 gallons. I mean, that's a lot. So, then I moved to Minnesota and I saw field after field after field of thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of corn plants in every single field and mm. every one of them losing water right uh wow. to the environment and yeah it's amazing how much wow. water plants lose so i mean think of like instead of each and every one of those corn plants sitting out there you know space you know, so close together and these nice little monocultures, even rows mm-hmm. instead of a corn plant of 50 gallons of water. You know? Yeah. And wow. it boggles the mind. Yeah. And so you found that with that study that you recently oh, yeah. did too? Because so, so, all right, here's here. I'll read you something and it's not verbatim. So this was a paper. I had a, uh, a student very much like, I don't think you didn't have Andrew Hill in your class. I don't believe. That doesn't uh, sound familiar. All right. 
Andrew Hill, student, uh, plant biology student here at MSU, undergraduate student, uh, very interested in geospatial technology. Mm, cool. Not my thing. I'm lucky if I can turn on my computer in the morning. Uh, yep. But he was very interested in geospatial technology. He's very interested in plants. And he took my plant phys class and we talked all about water and water loss. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I want to learn about, you know, this at a much larger scale. And, you know, I t- told taught him about how you can interconvert units and things like mm-hmm. that. Well, long story short, he wanted to get a graduate degree in it. And I said, well, you need to <laughs> talk to people over in geography and GIS. Yeah. Like yes. Yep. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So we ended up getting a master's degree um, and uh, he came to me and said, I've got this idea. I want to try to model water loss through the Midwestern United States out of the corn and soybean fields. And I'm like, oh, good God, Andrew, (laughs) how are you going to do that? He said, well, I got some ideas. And he goes, I need you to teach me how to measure transpiration out of a single leaf. And I said, well, yeah, I can totally do that. That's stuff Mm -hmm. we've done. We've already, you know, did it in plant fizz, but I can, you know, show you how to quantify it in, you know, much greater detail. So we learned how to use an infrared gas analyzer and long story short, you know, he went out and measured thousands upon thousands of corn and soybean plants. Wow. That's, that's draining. So here's what he found out. All right. Here in the Midwestern United States, and I'm reading directly from my notes here, we've got about uh, about 94 million acres of corn and soybean fields in the Midwest. And what does like the Midwest classify as? Is that from uh, like North Dakota to yeah that whole region? You know, All right. Midwest. Uh, so where eight states? I'm, okay. Yeah. Um, name them. I probably can't. But anyway, no. <laughs> eight states in the Midwest of the United States. We got about 94 million acres of corn and soybean. Um, wow. If you're to measure water loss out of 94 million acres of corn, you know, making some assumptions. And this is what we call uh, like a back of the napkin uh, type of uh, uh, finding. We kind of, you know, just kind of made some guesses here, you know, how many, how many plants do you have per unit area? How, how many leaves you have per plant? Right. Okay. How much leaf area, so on and so forth. Um, we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of these 94 million acres of corn and soybean losing in the neighborhood of about losing 8.14 million gallons of water per second. 8.14 was our estimate. And just to give you some context. Yeah, I need uh, a visual. <laughs> the average annual flow rate of the Mississippi River um, average is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 4.6 million. Wow. So uh, double that per second. So it's almost double. Wow. Um, so we're losing, you know, there's a lot of transpiration occurring in our corn and soybean fields here in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So we published that paper. Oh, must've been about two or three years ago in a geography journal, strangely enough, Mm -hmm. um, blew my mind. I could not believe that much water, but the math worked out. Yeah. um, It's pretty amazing. Andrew went on to finish his master's over in geography. He just, I literally just earlier this week, uh, got an email from him. He finished his PhD in Del at the university of Delaware and he's moving back to Minnesota, (laughs) starting a job with the forest service. Oh, wow. 
did his whole PhD uh, measuring uh, fluxes, these, you know, these large scale experiments where he'd go up in cranes mm-hmm. and measure, you know, the amount of water coming off entire forests. You know, he's up there in Whoa. a crane making all these measurements and so on. It's really, really cool. And wow. What I do. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. I like to work at the leaf. Yeah. And he was working, you know, from the leaf up. Yes. It's, it's really cool to work with him. And he taught me a lot, actually. So ah. that's what's really cool about, you know, being Andrew Hill. Is that him? Andrew Hill. Okay. So we published a paper. It was with Marty Mitchell, Martin Mitchell, and Faye Wan. Um, okay. Annals of uh, the Annals of the geographic society of america or something like that um wow geographical society so yeah i'm glad that there's something out there for everyone you know (laughs) so i mean at the end of the day i mean what a plant wants to do is it wants to become you know try to hold on to as much water as possible right Mm -hmm. so plants have obviously evolved all these type of anatomical and physiological and metabolic uh, adaptations to try to conserve water. And that's actually, you know, coming to Minnesota from Arizona, um, you know, it's really been a learning experience for me because very different systems, right? So um, in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, you know, you can go out in the middle of January, December, January, February, and make, you know, measurements of photo. being a plant biologist in Arizona was wonderful because yep. you know, in the middle of the academic year, you can go out and do experiments on plants here, you know, January, you know, from November, October, November, yeah. December, January, February, and March, not yep. much going on plant wise in Minnesota. Yeah. It's depressing a bit. It's kind of hard to teach plant classes in Minnesota yeah. during the normal academic year. But anyway, um, you know, we've got all these different types of adaptations uh, that, that plants possess to try to hold on to water. And I was, you know, starting to, you know, when we start talking about, you know, doing another podcast, I started giving some thought to it. And if you remember from Plant Fizz, you know, we, we could talk all day about some of this type of stuff. Yes. You know? Yeah. So, Plants can do all kinds of things, you know, anywhere from like um, rolling their leaves. So if you like, say for like a typical grass, you know, a typical grass blade is not flat. It's kind of shaped like a V, right? Mm-hmm. And, and plants can, can it's called leaf rolling. They'll, they'll, they'll okay. kind of roll upon yeah, themselves. Yeah, this way, not to, this yep, way. Exactly. To try to minimize, you know, reduce the surface area exposed to that dry environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to try to conserve water in times of, in times of water stress. You see that a lot um, in the grasses. Uh, you can have things like uh, negative uh, heliotropism, you know, where, where leaves will orient themselves away from the sun or some as positive would be towards the sun. A lot of that just depends on the water status of the plant mm-hmm. you know, to try to minimize, you know, the amount of sunlight hitting the leaf. Um, you can talk about, uh, the placement of the stomates on the leaf. You know, some some plants, you know, have stomates on, you know, the upper surface of the leaf and the lower surface of the leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, some plants only have stomates on the lower surface of the leaf, you know, to try to reduce how much water is being lost out of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some plants will put stomates, like think of the saguaro cactus, 
right? Where are the leaves on the saguaro cactus? Well, those are the spines, right? They're not photosynthetic at all. They're there for defensive purposes. And you've got stomates on the, on the actual stem of the cactus, right? And, and there have been mathematical studies that have shown, you know, think of it like a cross section through a, a saguaro cactus uh, stem. It's like an accordion, right? These are those V shapes and people have done mathematical Ooh. studies. Whoa. Right? Those stomates are on the stem and, and that stem, the water status, the stem changes and therefore, um, you know, the size of the stem changes, that's going to dictate, you know, how much water is lost and things like that. So stomatal placement that's a big on, one. on, on the leaf is, is very, very important. And not only is, you know, the placement of the stomates on the surface of the plant, but the number of stomates. So stomatal frequency, mm-hmm. right? um, there's things like they call patchy stomata where you have like in some conifers and other plants where you have uh, stomates in clusters, you know, where you have a high density or high frequency. Oh, stomates right. And fewer on another. And there's been, you know, three-dimensional mathematical models that have tried to show that, you know, patchy stomates lose water very, very differently than stomata that are, have regular placement. So like a grass, right? A grass, you got a stomate, you know, walk a few, you know, walks, you know, few micro, micro, micrometers away or whatever. <laughs> you got another stomate, then the same, then you got another stomate, then another stomate and so on and so forth. You got a regular placement. And in other plants, they're like all clustered together and then areas of fewer stomates and areas of higher stomatal frequency. Mm-hmm. And there's been all kinds of mathematical models that have looked at those type of questions and, and looked at how much water a plant will lose based upon where the stomates are placed. So wow. <clears throat> um, stomatal frequency is important. Uh, the size of the stomate, you know, how big is the pore? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously the larger the pore size, the more, the more uh, water will be lost. So there's different, you know, pore size is important. Um, cool. The aperture, we already talked about the aperture, you know, how, uh, plant, you know, will open or close its aperture. You know, it's not mm-hmm. open or closed. You can have varieties in between and, um, you know, different times of the day, you know, in the morning, uh, time of day is important. Yeah. Right? Um, yep. So think about, all right, at night, there's no photosynthesis unless you're a camp. Well, there's no photosynthesis. So mm-hmm. um, the plants closes its stomates and you know over the course of the evening what is it doing it's taking up water taking up water taking up water so Mm -hmm. right before the sun comes up in the morning those pre-dawn uh measurements you know those the plants will open their stomata you know to prepare to bring in carbon for photosynthesis Mm -hmm. you know so stomatal aperture changes you know a cloud passes over the stomatal aperture is going to change um people tell you to breathe you know when you breathe on your plants that changes the stomatal aperture. There's all wow. kinds of stomates are, are fascinating. Um, yeah. Some studies where, you know, you can take the epidermis and you can peel it off the surface and you can look at them under a microscope and you can breathe on them and they all open, you know, open Whoa. Up. Like, I'm going to have to try that. Singing. Oh, singing. <laughs> oh. Um, so it appears that stomatal opening and closing is somewhat independent of photosynthesis. photosynthesis. Wow. And there's all kinds of explanations, photoreceptors and things like that. But it's really, really cool. Yeah. So, wow. That really so it actually changes that quickly. Like it's like a <clears throat> like an instant thing. 
very quickly, very wow. quickly. Um, and you can measure that. Um, we have instruments, uh, porometers, <laughs> of course, resistant meters and ergas and things like that that can measure stomatal conductance. And wow. I mean, you can see it. You know, if you've yeah. got an intact epidermal layer, you know, you peel it off, put it in um, some water and, you know, look at them under a microscope and you can actually see the stomatal aperture change um, wow. in response to light and things like that. So there's been a lot of cool stuff. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, those are just anatomical yeah. um, things. There are other things like um, like you had mentioned the boundary layer earlier. Mm. Right. So what is the boundary layer? That boundary layer is an area of still air directly over the surface of the leaf, right? And the, the, the microclimate of the boundary layer is very, very different than the uh, rest of the atmosphere that sits on top of it. So increasing the size of the boundary layer, the distance is important and plants can manipulate the boundary layer uh, distance by putting things like leaf hairs, right? Or trichomes on their surface, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I mean, think of like sagebrush, um, sagebrush. I had once had a poor undergrad student looked at an eco climb up the side of a mountain, looking at how many leaf hairs were on the surface of leaves, uh, you know, wow. up the side, sagebrush leaves up the side of this mountain, this poor kid had to rip off the hairs of the leaves and count the number of stumps over hundreds of leaves along this, uh, eco climb. And I mean, thousands upon thousands of, of leaf hairs per oh you know, square centimeter of, of leaf. And so, you know, the, the longer the, the leaf hair, the, the, the thicker the boundary layer and the less water you lose, or you can increase the reflectivity of those leaf hairs, right? You've, we've all seen white leaf hairs. Mm -hmm. Why are they white? Well, oh yeah, yeah. Increase reflectance, right? Reduce thermal radiation loads. So, you know, you can do things like that. You can put thick waxes. You know, we've all seen waxy leaves. I mean, mm -hmm. think of running your fingers over a conifer needle, right? Conifers are adapted to dry environments. You may be thinking, well, I see conifers all over the place, you know, and, and well, I mean, where do you find lots of conifers like in the boreal forest in Canada, right? And sure, um, there's lots of water in Canada, but guess what? In the middle of winter, it's frozen. Mm -hmm. right? It can't be taken up by a plant. So, and these are plants that hold on. That's why they're called evergreens. They hold on to the <laughs> leaves year round, right? Um, don't want to be losing water out of them in the dry winter, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the, the colder the air, the less moisture you can hold, right? We all know about cold, dry air, and um, you don't want to be losing water out of those leaves. So what do what do you do? You put waxes, you know, ep epicuticular waxes. Um, now, why would you want to do that? Well, what are, what is wax? Wax is a hydrophobic lipid, right? Mm -hmm. So you got things like chutin, you got things like subarin. And what that does is it provides a layer of protection. They're hydrophobic. You know, they resist, you know, they keep water in, but they still allow the perm you know, allow carbon dioxide to permeate, you know, through it to reach the stomata to be yeah, taken up by photosynthesis. Wow. And that epicuticular wax breaks down, you know, over time. Uh, you know, if you're a conifer, you're holding on to your needles for, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years and you know, or more in some instances, right? right? I mean, that's a big investment. If you're if you're a tree, and you're holding on to your needles for, for years and years and years, 
Well, you better have a strategy, you know, to hold on to water for that long of a period. So, you know, a lot of the waxes that we associate with pine needles, well, it's not just pines. Mm-hmm. You, know, you find them like I studied rhododendron. Lots of waxes on the surface. You see those shiny leaves, rhododendron, mm-hmm. but breaks down over time, right? And as 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 leaves age, as needles age, you know, especially like in conifers or rhododendron, evergreen angiosperms, you know, as those leaves get older and older, they just like us become less efficient, right? So, yeah, um, you know, the youngest leaves typically have the thickest uh, cuticle. Yeah, that makes sense. Cuticular waxes. And it's the content of those waxes, you know, cutin, and things like that. What what makes it up? Those long chain fatty acid tails. It's going to dictate, you know, how much water is lost. Mm. So, um, other things like sunken stomata, right? So, some plants will, you know, you got your epidermis on top, and then you come down and you sink the down into the leaf, and put your um, put your stomata, you know, in a crypt or in a chamber. Whoa. Right. And then you fill that chamber or crypt with wax and that's going to increase, you know, the distance that water has to leave, you know, even greater. So it helps hold on to that water. So there's mm-hmm. all kinds of and people people will like model, you know, a lot of this based off electrical circuits. They'll talk about resistance uh, to water loss, you know, and um, there's a lot of cool mathematical models that have looked at these type of things. And then you can extrapolate, you know, from the leaf all the way up to the atmosphere and you can, you know, measure, you know, how much water is being lost over the Midwestern United States, how much water is lost out of this biome, out of this biome and things mm-hmm. like that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's neat. Yeah. Plants are amazing in those ways. They just kind of do what they got to do to survive. Yeah, exactly. I love, I mean, being a plant's like I started off with, it's tough, man. It's tough. <laughs> it's a trade-off. You got to bring in carbon dioxide, at the same time, you're losing water. It's yeah. not being a plant. Yeah, no, it's definitely not. And do we know like how much water? Like, I think I was reading something about like a large oak tree, and it's like how much water is really in that at one time? Like, could we guesstimate how much water it's holding, or is it like flowing so oh, often that we don't even know? That's a great question too, and. uh a lot of that, you know, it depends on, all right, what type of soil is it growing? I mean, as far as like an, uh, I could probably do it better as a percentage rather than like yeah. a total amount. Because yeah, that's, that's, it's, you know, it depends on time. Of, We're not perfect time here. Day, time of the, <laughs> time <laughs> of, uh, time of the day, time of, uh, right. what Factor. type of soil it's growing in, how big, how old is the tree? Mm-hmm. How much wood is it produced? Uh, the number that I've seen thrown around is, you know, and I, kind of question this value but uh i think i saw one number about you know 50 percent of the weight fresh weight of a tree is water i would have okay. thought it'd be a little bit lower but yeah uh, know. now herbaceous plants that's a little bit easier to get a handle on right so herbaceous non-woody mm-hmm. vegetation uh you're looking at anywhere between 70 90 percent water yeah so i mean if you don't believe me go out <laughs> grab a leaf uh, immediately, it. It will immediately stick it on a scale, immediately stick it on a scale. Yeah. As soon as you cut that leaf, it's losing water to the True. atmosphere. So you gotta be real quick, put it on a scale, hurry up and write down the weight, stick it in an oven for 48 hours at like mm-hmm. 60 degrees Celsius, evaporate all that water off, weigh it again. You're going to be amazed. Yeah. How much water is in, uh, that non-woody 
tissue. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. That reminds me of like, um, with mushrooms where it's like 90, 95% where it's, you literally can like squish it and it like drips water. It's like, exactly. that's crazy. But yeah. Um, and then I guess I want to circle back for one last question about, so we're talking about the air plants. How are those different with taking up water technically from like the soil? Is it literally just the stomates and stomata um, absorbing and dissolving or that so, way? Back to the air plant. <laughs> back to the air the reason, plant. The reason it's here in a nice little uh, croc, blue croc. <laughs> I had a student, the student in my global change class, I used to call her blue gator. She always wore blue crocs to class at the start of the semester back when it was, you know, 85 yeah. degrees in August. Right. Um, not wearing too many blue crocs nowadays. But mm. anyway, so she gave me this air plant and she's, you know, I said, how do I take care of this? And she said, well, you'll figure it out. So immediately <laughs> just spit on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I went online and they say, all right, well, take it and uh, put it upside down in water mm-hmm. for 15 to 20 minutes, at least once a week, twice a week. If you can do it, mm-hmm. you want to spray it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spray it a few times a week. <laughs> they can wa- Evidently they take water up through their, through their trichomes. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's a trichome situation. You know, what's, you know, what's great about plants is there are Everything. so many different, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so many different strategies that they have. I mean, we can sit there and talk about, you know, well, 99% of plants do this. Yeah. Always that 1% that does something differently. Exactly. And that's what's cool. Mm-hmm. That's what's awesome. And I tell my students, you know, you don't have to be a rock. You don't have to cure cancer. You know, you can be a plant biologist. You don't have to study corn. You don't have to study soybean. Find that one plant that's interesting to you for whatever reason. Yes. Air plants. I'm really fascinated with with uh lithops do you know lithops these stone plants yes yes they're crazy yes i didn't even know what those were until a student gave me who worked here in town oh yes uh up at the garden center gave me one and she's like i'm like this is like the coolest thing ever and they're window plants right and the majority of the plant is under the surface and they Mm -hmm. take They've got like these windows where light passes through. And where do you find them? You find them in like these hyper, well, here we go back to water, yeah. these hyper arid deserts in like Namibia in old stream beds. Mm-hmm. And, and they're called stone plants because people literally, they look like stones and people, you know, I guess when, when a botanist, God only knows in the 18, probably eight, late 1800s or something like that you know, walking along in Namibia in an old stream bed, reach down to pick up this interesting looking rock. Yeah. It's like, wait, what's this about? The plant. And so it's got this window on the surface of its leaves and they only like produce two leaves a year. Two yeah, leaves. super slow. And light passes through these windows and bounces around under the surface of the ground until it's eventually absorbed. And wow. that's what fascinates me. I'm like totally... When I retire or when I'm going to like, I'm just interested. All right. And once light, number one, what type of light passes through those windows? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's visible light, but what about ultraviolet light? And, yeah. And like that? Ooh. What type of light passes through those windows and how much does light bounce around inside of that leaf before it's eventually absorbed for photosynthesis? There's got to be some cool things. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, I I love that. I when I was working at Drummers, my uh, the head grower actually kept buying the seeds from Mm. those, and he was like, "I have to learn how these are grown." So he would like try 
over and over like he's like oh it's just so hard so it was it was fun watching him yeah. uh learn that too i uh i killed mine unfortunately yeah it's i i think it's a hard thing so i don't know they evidently do not like to be watered very often and, <laughs> and rot is like a serious yeah. thing they keep telling you do not water do not water do not water yep and uh i had one on my windowsill for years and years and years mm -hmm. And it never flowered. And I Dang. read somewhere, well, they need a lot of light. So I took it from my windowsill and I put it out on my back porch. Mm -hmm. Big mistake. Killed oh. it. Killed it within three or four months. So live oh. and learn. Well, like your student said, you'll figure it out. Yeah. I know, <laughs> right? And that's the great thing. I mean, just find a cool plant that interests you and become the expert in it. The exactly. world's expert on lithops or something like that. Just yes. find like some bizarre plant. And make a name and you can publish papers and, you know, look, mm -hmm. ask questions about this specific plant and what interests you and gets you excited that exactly. nobody's asked before. And there you go. There's your career. Perfect. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. Uh, life advice from Dr. Rulin. So that's a perfect stopping point. And <laughs> no, thank you so much for coming on again today and taking time oh. from your uh, final exam week. So congratulations on being done with that as well. Well, now the grading starts. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And then celebrate. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other questions, comments, concerns? I don't think so, KK. Yeah. Uh, I like what, you, I mean, like I've said, you're doing great here and I'm so proud of you and thank you. love seeing you again. And I'm jealous that you're down there in Florida. <laughs> I'm still stuck up here in Minnesota in December, but yeah, I'll be back for Christmas. Nice. And then drive back down here again. So hey, you are, uh, I tell all my students, you know, about uh, how your love for fungi and uh, <laughs> things like that, because we have students who are interested in, I mean, it's just such an underappreciated kingdom. Yes. Um, and there's, you know, the mycologists, they're an interesting bunch. And uh, I try to push as many students <laughs> as I can. Into, hey, we may have not we might not have a lot of people that study fungi mm -hmm. they're out there and that's another yeah. you know, like i just said find a fungus that interests you and go with it mm -hmm. and then show my podcast and then maybe they'll get interested in some sort of fungi and then find that person and yeah so hopefully Absolutely. msu get i mean now they have a soil person so yeah, hopefully person, finally, yeah. mycologist is next i hope so, <laughs> so we'll see all right. Well, have a lovely evening. Take care, KK. All right. Thank you. Good seeing you. All right. You bye too. Bye. bye. Tired of feeling drained and lethargic? Wish you could boost your energy levels naturally and stay focused throughout the day with no crash? I've been struggling with this problem too. Thank you to Sovereignty's Purpose for the ultimate energy of the day. Imagine a world where you wake up feeling refreshed, alert, and ready to conquer any challenge that comes your way. With Sovereignty, you live your life with purpose. Whether you're tackling a project, powering through a workout, or simply need a pick-me-up during the day, purpose is carefully crafted with a powerful combination of amazing ingredients like green coffee bean extract, cordyceps, ashwagandha, bacopa, beet juice, hemp blend, green tea extract, cherry, blueberry, broccoli, kale, and turmeric extract. All of this is only 25 calories and 115 milligrams of caffeine with no jitters and no crashes. Harness this 
aptogenic blend of benefits in your next smoothie, drink, cocktail, or dessert. Whether you're an entrepreneur, farmer, business professional, or student, Purpose has got your back. No more sluggish afternoons and hello productivity that lasts. Grab your blend with 10% off using the code KK10 on Sovereignty.co. That's S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O and use KK20 for 20% off at checkout. 